All right. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Hope your weekend is uh, going well. So today's the anniversary of 9-11. So let me just say a few words about that. There's, of course, a lot to be said about the last 20 years of the so-called war on terror. But for me, you know, the issue I'm um, most concerned with right now uh, in relation to 9-11 and al-Qaeda is the, is the legacy of Syria, where 10 years after 9-11, the U.S. decided to team up with the very with the very organization that had attacked it on 9-11, and that's al-Qaeda. And uh, that decision is best captured in what Jake Sullivan, who's the current national security advisor, wrote to Hillary Clinton in early 2012, so 10 years after 9-11. And he said to Hillary Clinton, al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And it speaks to how you know, the global war on terror, the so-called global war on terror, has been such a ultimate foundational effort to cement U.S. hegemony and domination that it even meant that the U.S. was willing to team up with the very organization that had attacked it on 9-11, which also gives a complete lie to the idea that the war on terror has been about defeating al-Qaeda, when in fact it's just been about spreading hegemony and no better case example than than the U.S. decision to team up with the very organization that had attacked it. So uh, that's on my mind today. And uh, I have a new article related to Syria, which I will link to in the show notes for this, about Syria, about uh, al-Qaeda in Syria, which is an aspect of the OPCW scandal that um, I, I hadn't really discussed yet. But basically, inside Syria, the OPCW is part of all the corruption there, all the uh, deception that went on to falsely accuse Syria of chemical attacks to justify the proxy war on Syria. The OPCW subcontracted an ally of al-Qaeda, and that's called a group called the White Helmets, which uh, also happens to be funded heavily by the U.S. and their allies. And so that's a new piece I wrote this week up at the Gray Zone. I go into detail about the overlooked facts on that. It's a, a really big scandal if you uh, get into the details. So I will link to that. All right. Uh, on today's topic, though, uh, Russia has suffered a major defeat in the northeast of Ukraine. I think that's pretty clear by now. Um, Russian forces have been forced to withdraw from the uh, key town of Izium. And uh, there's no denying that this is a big loss for Russia, that they basically they withdrew pretty quickly. I don't think, it doesn't sound like there was a very big battle for all these places. I just think basically once Ukraine surprised Russia and went for uh, these areas, Russia just quickly realized it had no chance and it withdrew. And it sounds like there, there weren't too many uh, Russian army forces there, that a lot of the Russian forces were really local militias. But regardless, this is a major loss. And um, people who are on the uh, pro-proxy war side are celebrating this as a major turning point. And, uh, you know, this is where I have to acknowledge my limitations. I'm, I'm not a military strategist, but just I uh, it doesn't make sense to me that this could decide the outcome of the war, given how much Russia is already committed and given how ultimately they're focused on the Donbass. Uh, those are the regions that have been fighting Ukraine for the last eight years uh, with Russia's support. And ultimately, that's what I think Russia is most concerned with. And given how much. Russia has expended on the war so far. If anything, to me, um, this defeat in the Northeast uh, will lead to Russia doubling down even more. And 
possibly even uh, doing what it hasn't done yet, which is uh, do a draft and getting more forces on the ground. Because what I do know about uh, military operations is that when you attack, you need a troop ratio of three to one. And Russia has not had that. It's, it's actually been numerically less than the Ukrainian side. So one consequence of this, I think, will be, especially given that Putin is getting slammed in Russia right now for this loss, I think Russia will double down. And I think, again, as has been the case from the start, all this is just a recipe for a longer war and more death on all sides and more suffering for the entire world, especially, uh, well, not especially in Europe, but certainly in Europe, where people are going to be facing higher energy costs as a result of uh, the rupture with Russia. So, look, I'm open to being wrong. I didn't think Russia would invade to begin with. So who knows? Maybe this is the turning point that some people are saying it is. But... um, to me, given how much Russia has committed and given their size and proximity, I just don't see them being defeated so so easily. Uh, but I guess time will tell. The one thing I, I have noticed is that in U.S. media accounts, they're saying that this is Russia's biggest defeat since uh, its loss in Kiev. And uh, I'm not convinced that Russia ever tried to occupy Kiev. I think you know some people like Scott Ritter have argued that that was a feint basically designed to um, distract Ukraine and force it to commit uh, troops to defend Kiev so that Russia could focus on other areas. And uh, so that's why this triumphant uh, um, attitude right now that I'm seeing, especially inside the U.S., uh, I suspect it might be uh, misguided and misplaced. But we'll see. Time will tell. Certainly, um, I think this war is destined to go on for a long time. And the idea of a diplomatic settlement is, uh, is pretty much it's, uh, it's over at least for the short while. And, uh, you know, on this side, the war hawks in Washington who have opposed the diplomatic settlement from the start. And we recently got new corroboration of that from Fiona Hill in foreign affairs who wrote that U S officials knew that there was the outlines of an agreement between Russia and Ukraine back in April. Um, she can, she wrote that in foreign affairs. What she, what she left out is what was already confirmed before, which is that Boris Johnson at that same time went to Kiev and told Zelensky not to negotiate with Russia. And that if he did reach a deal that the U S and UK would not have his back, which basically means the deal was off the table. So I think all this is just a recipe for more war as, uh, the real decision makers in Washington and London want. And I think that's a, that's a disaster, but we'll see. Uh, I'm very open to being wrong. Okay, let's take some calls. Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Okay, Sam. Hello. Hi there. Hey, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, Aaron, why must I call every Sunday and have to remind you of the basic facts, okay? They're not Al-Qaeda in Syria. They're moderate rebels. How are you not getting this, Aaron? <laughs> I mean, yes, they found that they, the U.S. assassinated the leader of ISIS in Idlib. And yeah, okay, sure, they uh, you know, held a memorial service for the killing of the Al-Qaeda leader. But they're moderate rebels, Aaron. They're they're fighting for um, democracy. I'm I'm not really clear on what the the mythology is behind that, but you know it's it's always fun. I mean, if they made it on PBS in a suit, 
what else can you say other than moderate rebels, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, this is what I, I, I forgot to mention, which is, uh, I forgot to mention Idlib, which is, mm-hmm. in the words of Brett McGurk, who is a now a senior official under Biden, the largest Al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11. So 10 yep. years, so, so uh, uh, you know, uh, two decades after 9-11, the largest safe haven for Al-Qaeda is a Syrian province that the U.S. helped give to Al-Qaeda. In fact, the U.S. was, the U.S. was, involved in coordinating the operation in which al-Qaeda won the war to take over Idlib. So the U.S. helped directly, like not just indirectly through arming other militias, it helped directly hand al-Qaeda the province of Idlib. In fact, let's listen to this clip of, this is Brett McGurk. For those who haven't heard this, it's an amazing clip. He's speaking in 2017, and he points out that Idlib, this province in Syria, is the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11 tanks and here at MEI about the very uh, important work about what's happening on the ground, but it is so much more complex. In Idlib province, um, look, Idlib province is the largest Al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11, tied directly to Ayman al-Swahiri. This is a huge problem. So that's Brett McGurk, uh, and he got a lot of flack from that, from the think tank world in Washington, because you're not supposed to admit that Idlib province, which is now the last, quote, rebel-held territory in Syria, or province in Syria, basically. You're not supposed to admit that the rulers are are al-Qaeda. You're supposed to call them moderate rebels. And uh, Brett Brett McGurk forgot that for a second. Well, I mean, do you remember uh, when they killed the leader of ISIS, how every article, at least I had read, they never referred it to it as the U.S. like uh, attacked uh, or drone strike the guy in Idlib. They'd always say northwest Syria in the northwest Syria. Yeah. And you heard so many people, oh, no, this is not Al Qaeda. They have nothing to do with Al Qaeda. And then suddenly when they found the head of the ISIS guy, all these think tanks that um, what's that annoying British guy? Charles um, Charles, yeah, he said, oh, well, in light of this situation, I have to reexamine what's going on in Idlib. And it's like, so these rebels somehow missed that the leader of ISIS was just hel- uh, was hiding out in Idlib. I, I have a hard time. Le- the last two leaders, the last two leaders yeah. of ISIS have been assassinated by the U.S. in Idlib. And people like Charles Lister, who have been paid to whitewash al-Qaeda and their allies for the last decade plus, acted surprised as if it's somehow <laughs> so shocking that the leaders of ISIS happen to be having their safe haven inside the Al-Qaeda controlled province inside Syria. Yep. Uh, well, real quick, I'll hop off the call, but uh, hope, uh, hopefully next time you uh, devote a section because I uh, hear with like Turkey's upcoming election, they're now pushing for uh, putting Syrians back into Syria, yep. uh, which is huge considering that the Turkish military is the one providing the protection for HTS. So yeah. I'd love to know what uh, what you think that uh, domino effect's going to be. But anyway, great Well, you know, I was talking to a Syrian friend, and he was saying he doesn't actually think that the leaders of HTS, like, um, and, and, and HTS, for people who don't know, is Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. And this is like, this is just a new name for al-Qaeda in Syria. They've they've smartly tried to rebrand. So they've changed their name from Nusra, which is al-Qaeda. And they've, they, but they've gone through a couple of name changes. And this is the most current iteration, mm-hmm. HTS. Yep. Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and um, so that's their current name now. And it's ruled by Muhammad al-Jalani, who was a deputy of uh, Baghdadi, the former uh, I, the slain ISIS leader. And he's he's the head of, uh, of, of HTS. He's the ruler of Idlib. But my Syrian friend is saying he doesn't even think that Jalani and his, and his circle are actually even in Idlib, that they actually live inside Turkey 
and that they only come over to Idlib for photo ops because, which makes sense because they're, you know, yeah, they're, they, they, they're, you know, if they live in Idlib, they're going to be at greater risk of being assassinated by Russia or Syria. Right. So mm-hmm. since they're essentially a Turkish protectorate, he thinks that they're actually living inside Turkey and then only coming across uh, when they're needed for a, for a photo op. But it's just, but what does Turkey do? I mean, Turkey doesn't want all these refugees. Um, but and they Turkey can't send them back because then they get all the hardline guys feeling like they betrayed them. And then Turkey's yeah. dealing with the very problem that Syria's dealing with. So it's a nightmare. I, I don't know what is, you know, um, it's a total nightmare. And, and yeah. people, of course, there's millions of people in Idlib now and li- living in these horrible camps and horrible conditions. And but you have a problem now where basically everybody in Syria who didn't want to live under the government, who identified with the um with 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 the rebels, quote unquote, with Al Qaeda, they've gone. You know, a lot of people have gone to live there now, and so how does yeah. a reconciliation happen? And how how do you dislodge the largest Al Qaeda safe haven since nine eleven? It's it's a it's a really difficult problem. I don't know, man, but uh, I always love when it's you know somebody mentioned it. Never forget, and when I point out like, okay, so why are we protecting the very group that attacked us? People like stare at me with a blank face when I point these things out. I'm like, yeah. Kind of the whole never forget doesn't ever seem to apply here. Yeah, exactly. Never forget, but just don't talk about the present. Exactly. Well, anyway, uh, good luck, Aaron, and uh, talk to you uh, next Sunday, brother. Talk soon. Thanks, Sam. Okay. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm okay. Um, So... I had like a few thoughts on what's going on in Ukraine right now, and I um, also am not a military person by any means, so I'm really curious about like what other people's views are on it right now, but like some views that I've heard so far is like, um, so this guy Brian Berletic, who has a um, YouTube channel, The New Atlas, was talking about like the difference between um, tactical and like strategic um, aspects of okay. the war or special military operation. And he said that like um, Ukraine's recent gain was a tactical gain, but strategically like the situation on the ground is still very much the same as like a lot of people were analyzing it to be like, you know, a few days ago in terms of like Russia having and the allied forces or um, whatever, having, um, you know, like massive, um, Sorry, I just woke up, so I'm not, um, words are coming to me slowly right now. Having the advantage in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And then I saw on um, Larry Johnson's blog that he was saying that, like, he believes that Russia actually had, like, advanced notice of Ukraine planning to do this. And so when you look at, like, the movement of troops, that, like, it takes a while, even with advanced notice, to get troops in place. Um, for, like, sort of moving from one part of the country to the other. Um, And so, like, he thinks that because of how sort of, like, orderly the retreat of um, Russia and and allied forces were, that, like, um, that is an indication that they did have advance notice. And so, like, he thinks that, like, they are possibly trying to... um, you know, sort of similar to what happened um, 
I can't remember where the other region was, but recently where Ukraine lost like a lot of troops, that like a similar thing is going to happen here where Ukraine is sort of like pulling it, stretching itself to its limits in terms of advances. And then like Russian forces mm. are going to um, swoop in on them. And um, he's, I think it was him or maybe it was other people in the comments on his blog saying that, I, no, I think it was him saying that like it's such a large number of Ukrainian troops that like they wanted to take advantage of the fact that they'll be able to land like a major strike on Ukrainian troops. Um, hmm. But hmm. at the same time, I've, I haven't seen these personally, but like I've heard people saying that a lot of people like um, in the sort of like Russian internet world are like very upset about yeah. what happened. And like, so that's one thing that gives me pause because it's not just like the Western media, just like jumping on the bandwagon of being like, oh, Russia's losing now. It's like also people in Russia that are saying that. Um, but then there's also people in Russia saying like, no, those people are wrong. And like what most concerns me is that the territory that Ukraine retook, like now there's reports that they're doing like quote unquote filtration of um, like people living there to see who yes. was like um, yes. collaborating with Russia and Ukraine. The Zelensky like recently said that accepting like um, aid from like Russian forces was going to be seen as collaboration. So I'm really worried about the people yes. in those areas. And like so far, it seems like Russia and the militias have been trying really hard to like. Um, prevent harm from coming to citizens. Yeah, and that's like that's a, a that's a big topic, that's but, a big, but that's yeah. a big problem because look, I mean, um, Russia has uh, has put some people who support it in a really bad position. They came yeah. and occupied uh, these places, and some people greeted them uh, with, with with open arms. Uh, and you know, there's no doubt that those people are being that there's ways to to see who was welcoming Russia, and now that Russia's left and abandoned them they're going to be in trouble. And yeah. that is, that is a huge defeat to Russian morale and uh, a huge knock on, on Putin. And that's a, um, a big problem for him, I think. And that's yeah. why I just don't think that this idea that Russia let this happen or, you know, I just, I don't know. Look again, my knowledge of this stuff is extremely limited, but um, it seems like uh, they didn't put up much of a fight. That's true. And they withdrew pretty easily. So that then could lead to one to say, well, maybe they're just doing this to, gear up to uh you know ambush ukraine at the opportune moment but i per i don't know my intuition tells me that they that they suffered a big loss here yeah and i think that like um in addition to there being evidence that like they are trying to take care of like or um prevent harm from coming to citizens living there or civilians or whatever um which again like i know some people would disagree with that but I, also people are saying that like a major effort is to prevent the loss of like Russian soldiers lives. So I wonder if like that they were in a position where they had to choose one over the other, which is a shitty position to be in. Obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. But like, yep. then I think one other thing that people are saying is that like the terrain that Ukrainian forces have moved into is much less defensible. So it seems like if like what Brian Berletic was saying that like strategically, like, um, the balance hasn't shifted very much. Like, mm. it does seem like in the coming days, like, Russia and the militias could retake the territory potentially, like, quickly. Um, so I just worry about, like, what harm will happen in the meantime. But, um, yeah, yep. so, like you, I don't know enough about military stuff to figure it out. And um, so I, I hope that other people have some insight, too. Um, but yeah, thank you. Me, too. Me, too. And thank you for the call. Okay. Tim. 
Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, um, the caller that uh, you just had on kind of raised a lot of the points that I've been reading and so forth. Um, but I think there's there's a simpler way of kind of thinking about this that might be clarifying without needing to go into a whole lot of detail about operational kind of tactics and stuff. And that is, you know, you mentioned the three to one ratio, which is kind of the rule of thumb for, you know, an assault uh, to be successful. But the fact is that um, the Russians went into this with the opposite. Uh, that is, you know, they're one to three. They're basically a one to three ratio in terms of um, in terms of troop uh, numbers. So what that says really basically is that they they aren't fighting uh, a battle for terrain. Um, the, you know, the, the the Russians have been extremely clear about this from the very beginning. What their three kind of objectives are, and and. Uh, so losing terrain in itself is not an issue. Um, the point is demilitarization, denazification, and I can't remember the last one. Um, but do you see what I mean? Like, it's implicit in the fact that they never had the troop numbers required to actually um, occupy terrain. And that, that, that's a weakness that has just been exploited by NATO. Um, and But at the same time, nothing has fundamentally changed. You know, the Russians still have massive advantages in artillery and rocket forces, massive advantages. They have complete, um, you know, air dominance. Uh, so there's really, you know, it's been funny. I, I mean, I originally, and I certainly read people who, you know, were very freaked out about this, but it's taken a while for me to kind of see that actually this, this isn't um, as big a uh, setback as people are saying, you know? Does that make sense, or? No, I uh, sure it does. I, you know, I just um, uh, the the problem is it's like, again, you know, I think all of us here, unless we have military experience, it's just very difficult to uh, to make judgments. And I'm inherently, I mean, my baseline is inherent skepticism of uh, U.S. intelligence officials. And so, if they're saying that this is a huge uh, victory for Ukraine. And also that U.S. intelligence played a big role in it. Like there was a, just an article in the Times yesterday saying that, you know, uh, that, you know, initially Ukraine wasn't sharing very much intelligence with the U.S., but now they are. And this helped Ukraine win. Um, it all seems very oddly timed. Like a few months ago, there was an article in the Times saying that the U.S. has very limited visibility into what's happening in Ukraine because Ukraine is, is keeping its plans very close to the uh, chest or, or the, like whatever the term is to the best. Right. And, um, and, uh, and that, I thought that was so funny because basically that was at a time when Ukraine was getting routed. Right. So this is all of a sudden U S saying they don't really know what's going on in Ukraine. They're, they're, they're out of the loop, but the, yet they still somehow had this huge window into Russian plans, which yeah. is pretty odd. So, but now they're saying now that Ukraine has a victory, they're saying, Oh yeah, no, we've been helping them out. And this is great. Um, and uh, look, I think it's just looking at a map. It looks it looks to me like Russia suffered a big loss. I think they didn't want to lose that that territory. That's my hunch. But yeah, in terms of the overall direction of the war, I mean, again, um, I take seriously what people like Anthony Blinken were saying back under Obama when they weren't arming Ukraine nearly to the extent that they are now. And they said that no matter what we do, Russia will always have the military advantage. Russia always has the escalation capacity. And as you say, Russia came in 
kind of with one hand behind its back. It didn't commit relatively that many forces, but now it could. And, uh, you know, people celebrating this, this win now might not foresee that Russia could still could escalate in a really significant way. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that I think actually will turn out to be the more significant about this recent uh, thing is the, the level of NATO involvement. Uh, it looks like it's been a step change in terms of the number of you know Western volunteers who have uh, been you know thrown into this battle and so forth. I think in some ways that's the more disturbing aspect of it. Um, in the sense that, you know, we are closer to, and I, I mean, you can, you can see it expressed in the fact that there's tons of Russians saying, you know, and I think a lot of it is trolling, honestly. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, even on Telegram, there's a lot of kind of hand-wringing, which I think, you know, is trying to unbalance, um, you know, Russia's kind of overall strategy here and get them to, you know, declare a kind of full-out war. But, you know, the... The Americans and NATO, you know, the vassal states that are part of NATO, are, this is a big escalation. And I, I think that's probably the most important thing to take away from this. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a recipe, you know, it's just, uh, it's a recipe for a longer war and just more death. Because uh, the idea that Russia is just going to pack up and leave based on this one defeat, I think is really wishful thinking on the pro proxy war side. And uh, they've already committed this much and the idea that they would just pack up and leave versus escalating i, I think they'll i think they're going to escalate and i think that's bad news for everybody for sure yeah all right tim thanks for the call thanks andrew hey aaron hope Hi you're there. doing well um you're completely right that Russia is not just going to pack up and leave because of whatever scale of loss that just occurred in Kharkiv. But uh, I had to ask you a question. This has really been bugging me for about a week. I'm going to write an article for antiwar.com about this, I think, because I saw you and Katie interview Noam Chomsky. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with Lex Friedman and his podcast? I've heard of him. Uh, I've heard of him, but I, I haven't heard Chomsky is on it, actually, just following your interview not too long after. Um, I saw the free portion of your interview. Can I just ask a spoiler question? Did Chomsky at any point when you talked to him advocate arming Ukraine? Uh, no. No. Are you aware that he went on to Lex Friedman and publicly advocated that the only sane policy is to arm and defend them? with another branch at the same time being the diplomatic branch. He's saying we have to arm them. And he characterized the armaments that we've given them and the aid we've given them as reasonable because it won't allow Ukraine to attack inside of Russia. Even though Russia considers Crimea Russia and they've been attacking Crimea, and his, his defense of this is that the first part being that we need a one-two punch, kind of like a diplomatic arm and a, and a military arm solution to this, which that basis I just find laughable with what we know about how much the U.S. has scuttled diplomatic efforts, right? And the West collectively has no interest in that. And I'm sure Chomsky would, isn't aware of that to some degree, agrees to that to some degree. So I don't understand how he can call for a multi-pronged solution when one of the prongs is literally the opposite of the 
administration's goal and really any administration. Let's not you know pretend this is Biden. And the second thing he said is that they have to be able to defend themselves. And I sat here and correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Katie bring up a question that this Ukraine war is almost identical, seemingly, to the way that the Soviets went into Afghanistan and we armed the Mujahideen? To bleed Russia. I recall Chomsky yeah, she did. essentially she did. agreeing with that characterization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now yeah. he's saying to arm Ukraine. And I'm sitting here thinking, should we have armed the Mujahideen? Did Afghanistan right. not deserve to defend itself? It, it, I'm just so perplexed. And the thing that infuriates me, and I know you're not like watching like Sweden, I'm not making this comment about you, but there's been no pushback, you know, no pun intended, no pushback by the left on, hmm. on Chomsky's statements. And it's like, are people not hearing this? It's it's mind boggling to me because I literally had to listen to it like four times to make. And I'm going to email him to clarify again before I write this article. I'm just so disturbed. Yeah, you should email uh, definitely. Uh, to, Thank to you. This. And uh, I um, it, so I didn't hear what he said. Uh, what I imagine, if if you're accurately relaying his position, what I imagine he would he would say in defense is that we need to arm Ukraine so that it's in a so that you know, there's an incentive for Russia to end its offensive and reach a diplomatic solution or otherwise, you know, Ukraine will just get taken over. I think, I think that's the wrong assumption, but I imagine that that's what he would say. I think he also would say that we need to arm them to us to, at a level that doesn't escalate the war, but just allows Ukraine to defend itself, as you said. Right. You said. But, 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 I, this I, is I, a, but as you what, say, what, but as you say, I, I, I don't think that makes sense. And I, I especially don't think it makes sense if you, understand the context in which all of this occurred, which is that there's been a war going on for eight years. It didn't start with Russia's invasion. It began with the coup of 2014, which the U.S. backed, as Chomsky knows. And then there's been a, you know, a, a civil war in Ukraine that the U.S. has heavily fueled. And it's pretty clear, I think, that the U.S. and Ukraine refused to end that war, even though they could have, with, with the Minsk Accords. And uh, Chomsky also knows that Russia has put out its settlement terms, which are not even that different from, Min- from Minsk. The only difference now is that they're not willing. Is that, is that now they're not willing to let those rebel regions stay inside Ukraine? Um, they want to have referendums there to let people decide whether they want to join Russia or not. Uh, but that's it. It's, it's still Russia's stated terms are not that different, and that's and and the outlines were actually reached as as Fiona Hill confirmed right back in April. Yeah, the US yeah they got what they wanted. It. Yeah. So the idea that we should instead uh, fuel the conflict with more weapons instead of using the leverage the U.S. has over Ukraine, which is, you know, like ginormous, uh, is to me really, um, I don't know. I, I don't agree with that at all. And I'm surprised to see him, to hear, to hear well, him, yeah. him advocate that. Yeah, well, he, I'm being as, you know, fair and precise as I can with my characterization of him. He said it was on par with the invasion of Iraq the invasion of Ukraine. And I'm sitting yeah, here I know thinking, he said right. that. Yes, he has said that. And I don't understand that either because first of all, exactly. The, I mean, just look at a border. First of all, uh, Ukraine and Russia are next to each other. Uh, so you existential interests. Yeah, absolutely. And they share deep historical ties. There's uh, millions of, of, of Russian speaking Ukrainians who identify with Russia. And there's been a war going on there for the last eight years <laughs> that where there's been a peace accord to resolve it that the U.S. and Ukraine refused to implement. Whereas, you, whereas Iraq is halfway across the world from the U.S., uh, you know, U.S. has zero defensive um, uh, interest in, in Iraq. It's strictly a straight-up war of aggression. 
and conquest. And so uh, I, I've heard, I have heard him say that it was akin to the, the invasion of Iraq. And I just don't think uh, that that makes any sense. Now, I mean, again, I don't think this war in Ukraine is justified. I, I, I personally, and you know, I have many friends who, who disagree with me. I can't accept that Russia had no option but to invade. I just can't accept that. Now, the counter to that will be not just the background that I talked about, but also that in the, in the days leading up to the war, there was a heavy uh, escalation in shelling coming from the Ukrainian side into the Russian-speaking uh, uh, regions of the Donbass. The, and, and the argument there is that, you, that you know, if you know anything about, about war, that when there's a huge artillery barrage over a sustained period of days, a massive escalation, it went from like, you know, uh, hundreds of explosions into the, into the thousands. And, and these were coming from the Ukrainian side onto the rebel health side. That it, when you see this amount of, our, of artillery, that that's the preparation for a ground assault. So basically, Russia had to act to stop Ukraine from invading Donbass. And um, maybe that's true. M- maybe that will be, but I just don't think, personally, I don't know, n- maybe not knowing enough about w- war, I don't know if that's like the smoking gun evidence yet. I just think that uh, the case... In my eyes, hasn't been made yet, but I'm open to it. I'm open. I'm sure that if we all had our way, we would have not wanted Russia to invade. Um, there, there's very few people, and especially the U.S., that would have preferred Russia invaded. Right. Um, one last thing is a parting thought, if I may. Yeah. It, it wasn't just the uh, artillery; it was the fact that Zelensky, out of apparently nowhere, said one of the yeah. most insane things that probably nailed the coffin shut on Russia in, invading, which is that he decided to threaten them that he's going to obtain nuclear weapons. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah I do. I do. He How insane that, is that? Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. And that was at Especially the Munich, if he thinks they're going to invade. Yeah, that was at the Munich Security Conference, right? Where he said that. Yeah, that was nuts. And he also he also had been threatening for a long time an offensive to retake Crimea. Um, so, yeah. when Chomsky yeah. says to arm Ukraine as if they're only going to take defensive measures, the last question I'll leave everyone, I'm going to ask Chomsky this. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic or anything, but Russia did just suffer a tactical defeat that's fairly large, whether it's going to strategically matter or not. Yeah. And if they have to amp it up, because like you said, they're not going to just walk away. They're either going to, you know, potentially the escalatory measures are to actually declare a war and mobilize or, and here's the nightmare, what happens if they use tactical nuclear weapons? And everyone thinks this is so out of the realm of possibility because we're so American centric, but we drop bombs on Japan to avoid having to do a full-scale invasion. Absolutely. Now, that, yeah. where's Japan? Does anybody have a fucking map? Yeah, yeah. So and, let's and look at way, Ukraine. What way, happens if he uses tactical... Yeah. What's the American response going to be? And, and we don't way, even realize we're playing with this fire. Yes, and Chomsky has, Chomsky has said that actually what U.S. policy is is a grisly experiment, which is counting on Russia not to do that. And we're using Ukrainians as the, uh, as the lab rats that we're basically... <sighs> we're, we're threatening the possibility of putting Russia in a situation where it does use nuclear weapons. So Chomsky knows that. He knows that. Yeah. So that's why I, I'm surprised to hear him uh, advocate something that I, I didn't think he supported. So I just advise you, you know, write him very respectfully. And, oh, I, you know, I intend to. I, you know, Thank you. I mean, we have yeah. – it's like I don't like it when people um, – I, I totally get it. People disagree with Chomsky, and I, I have disagreements with him, especially on things like Syria where, um, you know, I think he's got some stuff wrong. But he, he deserves – I don't like – the vitriol that he gets because he gets enough. Yeah, it doesn't help. 
from from everybody else. And uh, you know, and obviously during the pandemic, when he said that the uh, unvaccinated people should be isolated from society, you know, people were upset at him for that, understandably. But I think someone above, someone at his age, he's ninety four years old, uh, and he's done so much for the world and for the left. I think he deserves um, everyone's respect, even when we disagree with something he says, like everybody. I'll publish the email with the article I write, if I'm able to contact him. And I do plan on being respectful and it's just to clarify his position. That's all. I don't want to uh, mischaracterize him. So thanks for your time, Aaron. Have a good one. You too. Okay. Uh, Tim has returned to the chat. Okay. Hey, sorry to sorry to no call no again. Um, but the the chat line was small, so I thought I might uh, try something out on you. Um, I want to challenge your what I perceive as pacifism here. Um, you know, I think the difference between your position and my position, as if you know, not to make it sound too grandiose. You know, um, I think. Uh, in this kind of situation, assuming that uh, Russia has the ability to, you know, not react or there's some other option for them um, is basically a misperception of the dynamic that's going on here. Uh, we talked about geography just a second ago, and, you know, obviously it's thousands and thousands of miles away from, um, you know, the U.S. and any real existential kind of security issues that they have. So to such an extent that you can have these absurd, um, you know, Senate hearings where people talk about fighting Russians in Ukraine, so we don't have to fight them here. How would, how would they even get here? You know, I mean, the the whole level of rhetoric is so insane. Oh, nuts. Absolutely nuts. But to, to get to the point, I mean, I think in this instance, and I've had a lot of arguments with friends about that. Sorry, that's our little dog. Um, Friends about this is, you know, taking a pacifist view on this is really um, is really uh, handing handing NATO and the Americans a blank check because the whole dynamic is they're trying to provoke Russia into into the, the goading Russia using the um, you know the Eastern Ukrainians who are all, for all intents and purposes Russians um, you know torturing them so that. Russia is forced to react and try and protect them. That's the whole dynamic. So if if you're going to say, you know, war is never the answer, then I think you're, you know, you've handed, you've handed the aggressor here, which is us, a blank check, you know? I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist. Yeah. But uh, I think to launch a war, you have to meet a huge burden of evidence. I mean, like you're sending people off to die and you're sending them off to, to kill. You know, and I think to do to, you know, I totally get that U.S. provoked all of this, but still, you know, Russia is responsible for its own actions. And I think to sent to to invade a country, you have to meet a huge burden of evidence. And I'm open to it. I'm open to the possibility that Russia had no other option, that if they hadn't invaded, that uh, Ukraine would have attacked the Donbass and uh, killed uh, uh, all these ethnic Russians and taken over the region and. Uh, maybe even launched an offensive on Crimea. And because of the proximity uh, of Ukraine to Russia, that, you know, Ukraine uh, having this territory would pose an existential threat, especially in light of all the deepening NATO integration that's gone on over the last eight years. I mean, this is a big reason why Ukraine's done better than a lot of people, including me, expected is because they have been trained by the U.S. and its allies over the last eight years. 
and they have been sort of integrating themselves into the NATO military structure. And that you can, uh, that's a, you know, uh, the U.S. would never allow such a situation for Mexico to be a part of the uh, ch- China's military infrastructure or Russia's military infrastructure. So um, it does pose a major threat to Russia. I just can't, to, to invade a country, uh, I just think you have to meet a huge burden of evidence that, to me, hasn't been met yet. But I'm open to it. I'm open to it. Yeah, I mean, can I just say one other thing? I mean, one of the things that's obscured here by, you know, the hagiography around Zelensky and, and you know, just this, just the incredibly intellectually lazy kind of form of, um, you know, Western chauvinism that's involved with supporting this country. This This country is a hellish police state now. It's not a democracy. You sure. know, if you look at the the level of repression that's been required in in you know this it's it's not it's not accidental that the the um you know the units that were sent to the to the east were called punish punisher brigades right I mean they're basically you know so the horrifying thing to me about this is you know we're we're basically hand, our intent is to hand back the you know tortured uh, citizens of eastern Ukraine back to our you know their tormentors in Kiev that we've installed, and they're patting ourselves on the back for it. You know, I mean that that's what's so horrifying about this. You know, the the level. I mean, just take the Mitrovitz, uh website. You know, <laughs> there are Western journalists being put on a death list. Um, you know, by by a NATO supported organization. Um, and, and, and everyone thinks this guy is a wartime hero and they're fighting for democracy. How is this even possible that we could get this diluted about the situation that we're involved in? You know, I mean, Syria is just as bad. It's actually worse, I think, but the level of, um, you know, the level of delusion about what we're actually doing in the West is just astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, we can thank our, our really sophisticated propaganda system for that. Thank you, Tim, for the call. Thank you. Thank you. Andre. Hi, Andre. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Perfect. Uh... Yes, I was thinking about the, the situation right now and the uh, and capacity of, of, of Russia to, to to win the war in Ukraine. And if, uh, with regard to what's happening now, if we could see uh, a coup in uh, Russia. And uh, if so, uh, what the implication could be? Uh, well, look... Uh... Certainly, people are really mad at Putin for this loss, um, and he definitely is going to face pressure now, uh, pressure to escalate. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on Russia internally. I I focus more on how Russia is, uh, you know, scapegoated and uh, obsessed over in the West. So internally, I'm not really up on the dynamics that go on in Russia. But, you know, if you're asking me my uneducated guess, I really doubt that Putin faces a, a coup. He's, he's still popular. Uh, he's been, he's been, you know, he's, he adapts, I think, to, um, to developments. I don't think, he's, and I think he'll be forced. I definitely think he going to face, he's obviously facing pressure, pressure from uh, hawks inside Russia right now. And I, 
I think he will. Uh, I think he will bow to that pressure. I think he will escalate. I don't think he will face uh, a coup. That's my. That's my guess. Okay, because the situation seems uh, quite serious. I would say, uh, from a military perspective, uh, Russia right now. So. Uh... Yeah, but you know what? I'm reminded. He he said recently. He said this summer. He didn't he say something like we bear like we haven't even really begun inside Ukraine. You know, okay. We, right. He, like he said something to that effect. We've we've just begun, or we haven't even really started. So to me, that was a veiled threat that he could escalate a lot more if he wanted to. And I think now, I think it's pretty a safe bet that he will. Um, he could do a draft. Um, he could stop relying so much on local Ukrainian, uh, like local Ukrainian allies uh, in these in these militias and these in these uh, Donetsk uh, and Luhansk militias. Uh, so he could do a lot more. And that's that's my prediction that he will. Because okay. on the other hand, you could say that the, the West will probably send more weapons uh, yes. to retreat. Yes, so, uh, yes. Yep. That's why to me it's just to me all, all this means is just more war. I, I I ultimately think that Russia has the dominance to prevail, but it just it will take longer and more people will die. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Shame. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, I really appreciate hearing your thoughts on Ukraine and those other callers. But do you mind if I ask you a kind of a nine eleven question? Sure. So, like, obviously, in the last few years, um, like the Bush did nine eleven thing has kind of like transformed from a meme to like, I guess, just like part of the popular discourse. Yeah. And so, like. You know, I think I was, I was pretty young when 9-11 happened and just like over the years, I've been pretty, just like with all my politics, I'm pretty slow to, you know, kind of go one way or another. Yeah. But, you know, like I think probably COVID started listening to some stuff and I like, I wouldn't say like I'm fully on the fully Bush did 9-11 thing. Like I'm definitely not, but I do understand generally like what people are saying Although I think it's fundamentally rooted in like a reactionary politics, if that makes sense. Well, explain what you mean by that. No, because I don't. So like, I think the failure of like the Occupy movement and, you know, the disappointment of the Obama administration and then kind of the collapse of the Bernie movement kind of led people to just be like, the whole thing is so screwed up. There's so many obvious breadcrumbs. Yeah. Like, boom, Bush did 9 11. And mm -hmm. I guess I, I was thinking about this yesterday. Somebody posted that infamous C SPAN clip from September 10th, 2001, of Rumsfeld being like, yeah, like, there's, what is it, 2.3 trillion or something like that? That, like, there's no way we could audit. Like, it's just like this black hole in the Pentagon budget of 2.3 trillion. And I was thinking, like, I get why people point to that as being like this, oh, Bush did 9-11, but like, yeah. I don't know, in the end, I think like, that seems like a reactionary thing to be like, like either that or anything else to be like, oh, well, that's the like smoking gun. Mm. And um, yeah. I think uh, Al-Qaeda did, I'll, I think that, I think that Al-Qaeda did 9-11. 
yeah. but I, I think, um, look, you have to raise questions about the role of Saudi Arabia. There are these Saudi officials who are in contact with the hijackers. And you have to wonder about the level of awareness that the Bush administration had. I mean, they were warned internally. Bin Laden is determined to strike the U.S. And did they basically um, take a lax approach because they thought that any such attack, any terror attack on the U.S. would benefit their geostrategic uh, goals? I think that's quite plausible. But were they actually involved in the specific operation of flying planes and, you know, all that? No, I, I, I just don't see any, any evidence for that and um i think i think you have to give al-qaeda um i think i think it's like they they conceived of a really um of this crazy plan that nobody could have foreseen them who, who could have thought that hijackers would fly planes <laughs> into the twin towers i mean that was just nuts and i think uh this was al-qaeda's doing but uh in terms of the role of certain saudi officials and again whether Cheney, uh, Bush to me is is not really a a strategist. I don't. I, I, but 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 whether Cheney uh, was aware of the possibility that, that of a terror attack and thinking what he could do to capitalize off of that, I think it's totally fair to think about because Cheney doesn't care at all about actual national security. He cares about hegemony, and so yeah. and so you know he's willing to sacrifice anybody for that, including his own citizens. Yeah, the way I've been thinking about it recently is like it's just that the cards were stacked that way and mm-hmm. that they've been stacking the cards where like if anything kind of like slipped out like it would um benefit them i'll just like leave on this uh some researcher brought up this quote from david lynch actually talking about like he was saying kind of the core like the underlying thing of his films is like this idea of these like tall dark things in the night moving fastly or moving mm-hmm. quickly and like that that was kind of like the undercurrent of American life that we have like this very like veneer. And I think that's kind of, I appreciate your work for that reason. Cause I think it kind of like, it doesn't flatten anything into like, Oh, it was just Al Qaeda and they acted on their own. And like nobody in the U S was like benefiting from it or like, boom, it gets flattened into Bush did nine 11. And it's like, no, there's like a veneer and then there's something underneath it. So yeah. Look, the, the idea that like Bush and Cheney did nine 11, you know what, what, it would require such a huge conspiracy for that to happen. You're talking about a lot of people have to be involved in that level of an operation and, and cover it all up. And I just don't think things work like that. I think, um, you know, I think, uh, I just like, it's think... almost like, vi- it's almost vibier than that. Not to sound like all like, like there's almost like a dark spiritual aspect, not, and I don't mean that in like an occultish sense, but like, it's like, they're just like day to day kind of like planning things and stacking them up in a certain way. Where it's just all like, oh yeah, you know, Zapata offshore or whatever it is, and they're just like stacking things like this, and then like all of a sudden it's like, oh well, like Iran Contra happens, and we're like, we get all this power in this different way that like most people couldn't even wrap their heads around. It's not, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, well, hey, Shane, th- thanks, thank you for the call. Thank you. Yeah, have a good one. Okay, search. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Hi everyone. Yeah, it's been a long time since uh, I last called in. And yes, I have to say, and so, so you're calling us. You're calling us from Ukraine. Yep, I'm calling you from Eastern Ukraine, Zaporozhye, near the Zaporozhye uh, nuclear plant. 
which yes. has now been shut down as far as I know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just wanted to share some personal experience and things that I've gone through since we've yeah, last please. talked. Uh, so, so far, my older brother disavowed me because uh, I'm a fascist because of the things that we talk here. Mm -hmm. uh, and plus, my wife also left me, uh, I guess, for the same reasons. So oh, just sorry, for I'm listeners sorry. to know, uh, just for listeners to know what uh, actually normal people have to go through yeah. uh, while all of this is going on. Unfortunately, people are just too blind and too stubborn to understand that everything is not as simple as the television tells them. Uh, yeah. Also, I just wanted to share my thoughts on what's been going on in the last two or three days. And, uh, you know, uh, there was still some hope in me that Russia was actually on the right side of history and that Russia resembles some sort of uh, good in this world. But unfortunately, I think, at least for me, I think that... Uh, there's some sort of, uh, well, you, you would call that conspiracy, but there's definitely some sort of uh, deal going on because, you know, from everything that I read uh, from different war correspondents, Russian war correspondents that are actually fighting on the front lines, uh, from everything I read from them and uh, from uh, Russell, Russell, Texas, who's in Donetsk right now. Uh, I, as far as I understand, something terribly wrong is going on in the higher echelons of the Russian army because they were completely unable to secure their their positions in Kharkov, uh, almost as if they just wanted to let it go at a certain point. And uh, now Ukrainian armed forces are just pillaging through uh, all of their positions without uh, any fighting back. And at this point, they are now at the Russian border because as far as I know, they've taken Volchansk, which is basically near Belgorod, which is Russian territory. So, and also one funny thing, uh, yesterday and today they celebrate the uh, Moscow, the day of uh, the foundation of Moscow. And uh, while they were, the Ukrainian armed forces were actually uh, fighting, finding people that were cooperating with Russia in the deoccupied cities. Well, they were lining up teachers and people that were receiving uh, humanitarian help from Russian forces, uh, while Ukrainian forces are lining them up and killing them. Uh, the Russian higher command and Putin himself are celebrating uh, the day of uh, the foundation of Moscow and uh, having parties and fireworks. Meanwhile, uh, people from 
the Russian armed forces are saying, "What are you doing? We don't have enough. Uh, we don't have enough, uh, you know, things to fight this war. We don't have enough visors and uh, protections and vehicles, and you are spending you are spending billions on this pointless celebration while the war is getting." to some ridiculous point. And <laughs> the funniest thing is that during the celebrations uh, in Luzhniki, which is in Moscow, uh, the very famous singer from the musical band uh, Leningrad, maybe some of you know, uh, who is very pro-Russian and very pro-Putin, uh, during uh, this celebration and concert, uh, they were singing this song about uh, Moscow burning in fire and Kremlin burning in fire and uh, acid rain raining on everything. And it sounded very apocalyptic. And uh, I haven't seen any normal explanation as to why the song was uh, chosen for the celebration of the day of Moscow. And I think that a lot of people are shocked, but, uh, you know, the singer Sergei Shnurov is not facing any, uh, any problems because of this, but, you know, it's very strange what's going on. And I can't help but think that there's definitely some conspiracy going on and what happened right now is needed to is needed for Russia to officially declare war on Ukraine and NATO, and probably we will see um, some real ramping up of war actions on Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you say that there's a conspiracy going on, um, what do you what do you think that is? Well, I don't want to bore you with uh, conspiracy nonsense, but uh, in two thousand, back in two thousand fourteen and sixteen, uh, there was very famous Ukrainian singer called uh, whose name was Skrebin, and he was very active, and he was very actively helping. Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian people. He was uh, very negative of the Ukrainian government and he was doing everything he could to help people that were caught up in this war. And uh, he used to talk a lot with uh, people on the ground, with uh, actual soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers. And what they told him during the time was that uh, they could actually prevent Russia from taking Crimea, but uh, they were told by their higher command to stop any activity and to let them go, to let the Russian forces take Crimea without any fight. And um, he also told a story about Ukrainian forces capturing Russian higher officers and, uh, well, they were taking out information from them with 
you can imagine in what ways they were doing that. And those Russian officers told them that the point of this war was to kill as many young men as possible and to destroy heavy industry on the territory of Ukraine. And uh, not long after that, Skrebin was uh, killed in a car crash. And, uh, but then I told a certain conspiracy going on. I just, I can't but feel like a Serge, could, you are, could have Serge, you're breaking up. This. Right. Uh, you're breaking up a little bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have to wrap it up. So, but yeah, I, um, what I was told by my Ukrainian friends was that, you know, if Russia had invaded right after the coup in 2014, uh, you know, and when the, uh, Odessa massacre happened, uh, by pro-coup forces, uh, you know, and when the war in the Donbass kicked off, uh, that he would have had a lot even more support than he has now. But, you know, from their point of view, he waited eight years too long. And um, that gave Ukraine time to build up its capacity. And we're seeing that now with, uh, with these Russian Definitely. losses. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, but listen, I'm so, I, I'm, I'm just sorry to hear about all the, you know, turmoil personally. This must, I mean, this is just a one small window into the horrors of war and all the upheaval it can cause. It can cause. And I just, uh, I, I thank you for calling in and sharing with us how things are going. Yeah. Okay, sir. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, is, I'm gonna. Yeah. Yeah, it's a connection thing I'll too. Right? So up. thank you, Serge, and, and 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 please check in with us soon. Will do. Thank you. Okay, let's take a few more calls. Square. I'm gonna have to skip you because you've already spoken, and I we have to go soon. So I'm gonna take Georgie first. Georgia, are you there? Georgia, there's a mute button that you have to press to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll just have to leave it there. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. And uh, I'll be back on here tomorrow with Katie Halper at 11 a.m. Eastern time after we do Monday morning on YouTube at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And otherwise, have a great rest of your weekend. Bye, everybody.